Lucky enough to be joined again by Rupert Carline from Calder Wealth and Calder KiwiSaver. Mate, good to see you as always. Today we're going to be diving into some thinking around building out an investment portfolio and I'm going to pick your brains on that because it's something that is obviously very exciting for a lot of people but also carries a lot of risk. So I want to get into some of the basics of what people should really be thinking about. Awesome. Glad to be here and... um Glad this time I'm talking about something I know heaps about. <laughs> well, we got uh, got deep into the productivity recently, which was fun. Oh, look, it's awesome. It's my, my, my current passion, right? How yeah. do we make New Zealand a better place? And and we focus on, it's kind of got to start at the bottom and we got to be brave. We've got to think big. Nice, mate. All right. Similar themes for putting together an investment portfolio. And one of the things that I often see, and this is really hard, is that young people message me probably because they then learn from the podcast, they're building um, up some authority, or I have built authority, I guess, and they think, like, hey, mate, you know, what shares should I be investing in? And I go, oh, no. Like, that's a horrible question in your yeah. that's a hor- that People ask me that, and I go, fuck, I, nah, I just refuse. Sometimes I reply, is this the FMA? <laughs> <laughs> but it, I can't answer that, right? And people, everybody, like everything, you've got a map, your your actions back to your goals. Yeah. Um, so I don't think I think one thing to try and teach people to start with is there's no right or wrong answer to that. the The right answer is whatever's going to help you get closer to your goals. Yep. But whatever you tell somebody, as soon as you get it wrong, they're going to say, "Well, you said that was a good company to invest in." You know, I didn't know the CEO died the next day. What you just don't know, right? So how can people be thinking about investing? without thinking they have to just pick the right stock? So I'll go one level higher up than that because um, I'm good at not answering your questions. Nice. Um, it's all about diversification. And so if you if you build out a well-diversified portfolio with kind of, and the theory says 10, 20 companies um, spread across different markets, then actually you're not taking that much risk. And so if I choose Air New Zealand but in New Zealand only makes up 5% of my portfolio, then that's where it is and I want to know that versus if someone comes and says to me, what should I invest in? And I say in New Zealand and I've got no idea about in New Zealand for anyone listening to this. It's just using that as I'm an just example. using that as an example. Yeah. Um, do they go, then they kind of might put 100% in. So to me, actually, when someone comes and asks me, what should I invest in and what's, is that a good company or a bad company? My answer is always... I don't know, I don't care because I think you should be going into an investment fund or an ETF because that's just a million times easier to invest because you're going to get diversification and it's a set and forget strategy. And as much as we all say we like to think pretty hard about it and do a whole lot of work on it, we don't. Yeah. We'd much rather go play with our kids or ignore our kids on the weekend. <laughs> There'll be people that won't actually know what an ETF is yep. or a fund. So for simple terms, for someone like myself, what, what does that mean? So a, a managed fund. So a managed fund is where you pool your money with other investors. That fund will be managed by a fund manager. So Kura Wealth, Kura KiwiSaver is a fund manager. Your KiwiSaver is a managed fund. So what happens is... We have a, a unit trust, so basically a pool of money is put inside, um, and inside there, we the manager decides to go and invest that money, um, and so it might be a US equities fund, for example, that has a whole lot of companies listed in the US in it, um, and so as the investor, I'm investing, I'm buying a unit in that fund, which means that I have a small share of that fund which owns 500 different companies. An ETF is basically a different way of doing managed funds. It is a managed fund that is listed somewhere. So generally, much easier to get access to. Mm. The most common ETFs, and kind of some of my favorites, uh, in the US where you'll have kind of um, passive market exposures. So for example, you'll have... um, the, the Vanguard VOO is the most popular ETF in the world that tracks the S&P 500. An alternative and a variant of that, which is what we invest in, which is the iShares Sustainable US Equities Fund, SUSL. Um, so there's lots and lots of different funds that give you whatever you want and anyone with a sharesies or hatch account can simply go and buy them on the market. 
The beauty about doing that, you spend $20 per share when you buy it, but you're getting 500 companies rather than one. So you're achieving all your diversification with one single investment. Because the fund's doing it for you. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Because I've been, I think when you start thinking about diversification, it's so much more than just, okay, it's not just in New Zealand anymore, it's multiple shares. But also then you're talking about US equities. So then that must you must need US dollars to buy those, I'd imagine, right? So then you'd start thinking about diversifying at a currency level and all sorts of different things. Yeah, and look, I think, um, to be fair, you, you don't think too hard about it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Then the risk is that we overcomplicate it, right? So we, at the start, where I said we got really deep on productivity and we're going to do this on investing, that's number one mistake. Yeah. It, investing can actually be really simple. And you, you just simply go figuring out what what kind of assets, what what is your risk appetite and your investment horizon. So you're investing for ages. So can I take heaps of risk and put it all on equities? Can I not? Then I go to a platform and say, whether it be Hatch or Sharesies or Interactive Brokers, Tiger, there's thousands of them today. And I simply go, I just choose two or three of those ETFs or even one ETF, I put the money in and I'm done and I never have to go and think about it again. The reason I personally like the US market and like kind of doing those US funds is because history has shown that the S&P 500 um, is that makes up 60% of the global stock markets, by the way. But that's a that's a, an index which is constantly innovating. It's historically the top companies always end up, or most of the top companies end up listing in the US. It's because you're investing in that index, the great companies end up growing from being really small to big. So they go from being a small company, then they get included in the S&P 500, and then the great ones, the Microsofts, the Apples, end up at the top. And then the shitty ones drop out the bottom. So you're actually, even though you've got one single investment on the way through, you're just constantly recycling. And the mix of what happens inside it constantly changes. But I don't think you need to think about currency because fundamentally, the, the, well, the technical theory on currency is currency over a 20-year period over the long run shouldn't deliver a massively different return. Most of the return should be delivered by the underlying assets. Um, and so you just let the platforms do the currency for you on the way through. You say thinking at a 20-year window, that's uh, easier said than done in a world where most people are probably thinking next week or quick wins. How do we teach people more about delaying gratification and thinking longer term when it comes to investing? Yeah. We're inexperienced I, as a nation of investors. Well, I think there's two parts to that, right? I think we've got a kind of we talked in the last and productivity about setting yourself some goals, setting yourself some objectives, right? And what does that mean? That means sitting there going, me, I'm Rupert, 40 years old, I want to retire at the age of 60 and I know to kind of keep my wife in the lifestyle that she is accustomed to, I need to have X dollars by the time I get there. Um, and so for me, it's about working back from that and creating a plan and creating an investment plan. I sit there and I go, I've got a five-year goal, a 10-year goal, a 15-year goal, and a 20-year goal. And to get there, we've started all the way back from, okay, that means I need to put 100 bucks a week away into my account, and I need to make sure that once a month I aggregate that up, put that through Hatch into my SUSIL account, into my SUSIL um, ETF, and then just slowly work my way through. It's not until I kind of figure out and start working about what that gets me in 30 years' time that I start kind of really appreciating it. Because at the end of the day, 100 bucks a week, five grand a year, it's a lot of effort to go to and a lot of risk to take if I'm only going to invest in one year because mm. on a really good year, I might get 15%. On a really bad year, I might get minus 15%. Yeah. Um, and so it's important we don't think like that. Over a five-year period, I'm pretty confident that I'll get kind of plus kind of 10 and maybe at a really bad scenario, minus two or three. Um, and over a 10-year period, that number changes to very confident in my kind of 7 to 10% return, but almost very, very low chance of losing money. And so that's why it's about understanding those parameters and understanding the ups and the down and knowing that if you're going to invest in equities and if you're going to invest in the stock market, there is always a down, but the down actually disappears the longer you stay there. Yeah. And so that's why being an investor to me 
and particularly if you want to invest in the stock markets, you need to make sure that you're there for at least five years. There's no point sitting there going, I want to buy a car next year, so I'm going to put all my money in the US equity market or or anywhere else. That's why I hate the question when I get it to of, hey, what shares should I be investing in? Because I've got no idea. It's true. Yeah. yeah. And to give you an example, did you see my recent content around the dividends I've been getting? Yeah, that was awesome. You like that? Yeah. Yeah, because I tried to use that as an example of, hey, this is what's possible if you think a little bit longer term. And the thing is that that fits my strategy because for me, I thought, okay, I want different forms of income and I want to see money coming in and go, wow, you know, I didn't have to do anything for that. You know, didn't have to do anything, um, quotation marks there, but that will excite me because I'll think, oh, I hadn't even remembered about that and now that goes into the budget or what am I going to do with that? But I looked at it as subsidizing costs in my life. So a little bit like a business, can you bring in more to then reduce your overheads, et cetera? And so when I started doing some of this content, the questions started becoming, mate, how did you know to invest in those companies? And the answers, I just Googled, what are the top dividend paying companies in New Zealand? That's as simple as I kept it. But what people forget too, a couple of people said, to me, you know, they want to know more about it. And I said, the question you've forgotten to ask is, do you still have the same amount of money in Genesis Energy and Heartland Bank, et cetera, as when you first put it in? And what if the answer is no? Then are you going to like the fact that I got dividends? Is it cool anymore? Because is my five grand now 4.5 grand, but I still got the dividends and you're just looking at the dividends? Yep. Now, I think that's the mind-blowing bit that people look at one data point or outcome and go, oh, I should have been invested in that. But for all they know, my money is actually worth less because the market's taken it backwards. So, That's a really good point. Yeah, I'm not worried about that because my strategy from the start or my goal was I want forms of income coming in. So I can kind of show Boaty, hey, great example, look at this. But then you've got to remember when you see stuff on social media to think another layer deeper. If I put a disclaimer at the bottom of that post and said, hey, but just a heads up, my six or eight grand was actually 10 grand when I started. People go, oh, fuck, you're an idiot. You know what? So you've got to be very careful asking simplistic questions when it comes to investing, I think is my point there. Yeah. Without having an understanding of what someone's goal. No, 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 but that's why number one step in becoming an investor is understanding your goals Mm. because you went through your process internally and you said, what's my goal here? My goal is to deliver me some passive income. Yeah. I need passive income, so therefore what am I going to do? I'm going to Google what are the highest dividend paying stocks on the NZX and you didn't do one of them. You did kind of five of them, right? Yeah. So you, you you found an investment that matched your objective, which was paying dividends. You diversified that investment. I'd argue you could have probably done a tiny bit more diversification, yeah. <laughs> but that's a different topic. But And then you, you went through there. Me, when I kind of think about how I invest and what I do, my goal is my retirement. Um, and making sure that when I get booted out of Kura Wealth because I'm too old, um, I've got something to fall back on. And that kind of means that's why I go, I've got an asset which doesn't, which gives me a tiny bit of income every year, but I reinvest it. But I've taken the view that that's the asset that's going to give me great long term capital growth. I know, well, what happened last year, right? Where mm. at one point I was down 20%. Luckily, the mount to markets have bounced, and now I'm back to kind of well and truly up. Yeah, but that's I don't care because I'm thinking about it on 30 years. So that's actually number one piece, which I probably I don't, we don't talk about often enough. Is you got to figure out your goals before you get started on this journey. Yeah, yeah. I set myself a goal to try and get to a hundred thousand dollars in KiwiSaver because I should probably already be there if I didn't stop contributing in my twenties because I took a holiday to pay down debt. Yeah. Because I did the classic short-term thinking rather than well, thinking. If you want to accelerate, you just go into the carbon neutral cryptocurrency fund. <laughs> what's, that, what's that returning at the moment? Plenty. Well, we're up 60%. Jeez, I could have already been there. Oh, yeah, mate, exactly. So I've increased my weekly contribution and I see that going out. And the thing I write down is, Luke, will you notice a difference? And I get to my next pay run and I think, oh, okay, I can do that. Yeah. I haven't noticed a difference. That's cool. And then I keep contributing but then once i get to that 100k i will have to decide do i continue on or do i reallocate back to funds that i can touch etc but you get to start having these conversations 
with yourself by thinking longer term. Yeah. But I don't think we do enough of it in the country of teaching people longer term thinking. No, it's all about that that long term. But that's the, the difference on compounding, right? Yeah. Um, and that's why I think compounding, that's the most important thing you can ever learn. And this is when we talk about, say, uh, the, the last conversation we had kind of uh, a little while ago on productivity, where Australia, I think, has compounded their per capita growth at kind of 5.8% um, per annum. New Zealand's been at five. Everyone goes, oh, fuck, it's not much of a difference there. The difference is that we've gone from being the second wealthiest country in the world to 35th and being richer than Australia to now they're 30% richer than us. Yeah, so compounding, com compounding is what does it, right? And when we can get people to understand the compounding nature of returns, like when I talk about KiwiSaver, right? If you're an average kind of person earning 60 grand a year, uh, you start with a balance of um, zero at 30 because you've just gone and been lucky enough to buy a house. Um, by the time you get to 65, you think you're putting 20 bucks a week of your own money away, but by the time you get to 65, that's going to be 600-odd grand. What people don't realise is that 320 of that is your returns mm. and because they just compound up and up and up every single year and every year the returns drive more. And I think that's the story that we've... If we can figure out how in our maths curriculum we can get people to understand compounding, that's hopefully how we get people to start thinking long-term. Is part of the reason that we don't prioritise that thinking, do you think, is it because we're so hard down the property path that people then go, well, I don't need to invest because I've got my investment, it's my property, I need to pay my mortgage off faster? Yeah. And that's, I think that's one of the big issues that we, we see. Is um, the... Just to interrupt there, is the housing market broken in New Zealand? Oh, there's no question. Okay, good. So it's a hard yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no question. Yeah. So, um, oh, look, my favorite charts at the moment come from The Economist, where there are these charts that show two stats. One is the percentage of households spending more than 40% of their disposable income on rent. New Zealand is like by far and away at the top of that, of all of the Anglo-Saxon countries they've looked at. And it's kind of so our rental bills are significantly higher than anywhere else in the world. Why is that? You look at the second chart on the same article where it shows that uh, New Zealand has about 35 um, houses per 100 inhabitants in New Zealand. Um, rest of the world, so the US and Australia, which are probably the most similar countries to us, they're at about 45 houses per 100 inhabitants. What's been happening in New Zealand is that over the last 30 years, that number has kind of been flat, and over the last 10 years, it's been falling. So we're actually building less houses than the number of people coming in, so our ratios are getting worse, whereas every single other country in the world is growing. So fundamentally, right, we just have nowhere near enough houses. The final stat, which really just shows how fuck it all is, last year, we let in 100,000 immigrants into New Zealand, right? Which is great. We need them for work and we kind of, because we've got so much stuff that's been happening here. We only consented 40,000 houses to be built and only about 80% of the houses that are consented actually get built. Yeah. So we're already kind of coming back to my stats before where we're saying we're currently at like 35 houses per 100. Last year, we only built 32 for every 100 people coming into the country. Shit. And so we, we just continue to go backwards. So, And I think I would love to see, and I know it got tried with Kiwi Build, but just, they, but just because the government failed once doesn't mean they should give up. The only thing that I see is going to work is a mass building program um, by the government to build a lot of houses, similar to what happened in the 1960s and the 1970s here in New Zealand. Is the hope then that we increase supply, decreases the overall cost? Yep provide more yeah. there's, there's two things that'll happen right one is um by embarking on a massive building program what you do is you um you get supply that's going to push down prices and push down rents we hope at the same time as well 60 yeah. percent of new zealand renters are getting some form of accommodation supplement from the government wow which shows how kind of out of whack the whole market's become right 60 percent of renters in new zealand are receiving some form of subsidy from the taxpayer yeah Sheesh. 
So, yeah. That's broken. <laughs> well, no, but and so you actually go, once we take, so you can't just look at the cost of building houses on the government balance sheet as the cost, right? Mm. Think about the savings if we can figure out a way to push down rents. Um, but the other thing that's really interesting is we don't have the big, and we've kind of can't get the big commercial developments through and the big stuff starting to happen now. Unfortunately, housing in New Zealand has been left to mum and dads to deal with, which is great. Yeah. Um, but what that means is that we know it's about building a kind of a multi-storey apartment block. The stats, and this admittedly these stats were from about 2019, it's about 30-40% cheaper on a per-dwelling basis, excluding the cost of the land, just the construction costs, to build, build houses if you're building in apartment blocks versus if you're building standalone houses. Yet for some reason we, all, we think we still need to keep on building standalone houses. Yeah. So we've got to change the types of housing that we're building. We've got to change, we've got to mean that that means if we're going to go to more commercial style um, residential property and long-term rentals, that means unfortunately we need people with very big balance sheets um, that are going to be kind of, that are able to fund those developments um, mm-hmm. because rather than looking at it being a $2 million entry into a property, you're looking at it being a $50 million entry into 100 properties. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a hard one at the moment and it's going to getting worse and worse. Yeah, that's going to take a long time to try and get it going in a different direction. Yeah. Um, you'd have a lot of younger clients, I'd imagine, yep. using your platform and yep. business. Yeah. So do you hear from them that they don't think home ownership's achievable? Is that a theme? Yeah, it is. So we, we do get... Um, so I think there's two parts to it. We There are a lot of our clients, so we... Because of our tools and how we talk to our customers, we always want to understand, do they think they're going to buy a house? And so whenever we get a 25-year-old who says, I'm not going to buy a house, um, we kind of follow it up and go, you sure about that? That's a bit weird. Um, but yeah, we, we get a lot of people going, no, I've kind of given up. That's really? just not going to happen. Um, which I find really sad because I think we live in the worst of both worlds in New Zealand, if you know what I mean. We're... We've got a country that's set up for people to own houses. There's no certainty around being a tenant. So um, so a whole lot of studies show that kind of kids that are brought up in families that don't own a house end up way worse. And that's after normalising for a lot of the social impacts. And I was reading reading this report and reading some of the studies, and the case studies were really interesting. They're talking about, um, on average, I think if you grow up in a rental house, by the time you've turned 18, you've moved house 10 times. That, right? Yeah. How many schools are you going to go to? Every time you move to a new school, you start again. Mm. And so we, unless we figure out a way to, we either kind of have to push house pricing down and figure out a way to make it so that people can afford to buy houses so they've got a home. Or alternatively, we've got to change the rules to allow that so that rental houses can become homes. Yeah. Um, and we can kind of give people certainty that they can bring up their kids in a safe, secure, stable environment. Um and at the moment, we've got neither of those. Yeah. Wow. So that's what you mean by the worst of... Both worlds. Yeah, okay. We, we've got a so housing even... market where people can't buy. Yeah. And at the same time, we've got a rental market that's basically set up to treat housing like transitional. Yeah. No real no real solution. No. Yeah. Far out. That's... Uh, Depressing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not great. Especially because it's the impacts are seen so far into the future. Oh, those, and so... Yeah coming back to some of the political conversations where you sit there and go, you got to solve crime, you got to solve welfare issues, you got to solve all that stuff, right? Mm. It all starts with housing. Yeah. Like, let's be honest, if, if you've got a family that's having to spend 40% of their income on housing, that means how much extra work are they having to do? So that means how much less time are they spending with their kids? Yeah. Not less that they can give their kids, which means that the kids are then resorting to kind of other things. That's where crime comes in. I think so many of the social problems that we see in New Zealand today come back to the housing crisis. Yeah. Is a good retirement plan to get a mortgage, pay it off, be mortgage-free the day you turn 65 and qualify for the pension? Um, no. No. <laughs> um, and the, the reason being that the pension will give you about 400 bucks a week, which is not very much by anyone's means, right? Even if you, you've got a mortgage-free house, 
um, it's still pretty difficult to get by on that number, right? By the time you've done the supermarket, you've got your bills, you've got everything else. Rates, insurance. Rates, insurance. There's just like, it's 400 bucks a week is, is not enough. And I think people kind of broadly accept that, right? I think the general thinking is that um, you need at least 800 to $1,200 a week in New Zealand to survive. Um, or sorry, a fortnight uh, to, to kind of live well. And that's kind of, so we're kind of half there. The problem by thinking that you're going to use your house, because what they, then the next answer I get when I say, no, you can't rely on that. They say, but I'm going to sell my house and mm. I'll kind of move somewhere else. Oh yeah, so you're going to be 65, you're going to be 70, 75 years old. And then at that point in your life, that's when you want to move to a different area away from your networks. So you're going to move away from your friends move away from your kids, move away from everything and rebuild your life and start again somewhere that's a whole lot cheaper to live. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, just doesn't happen, right? Very hard. Um, I mean, and so I think it's important to have a mortgage-free house because that gives you options and that gives you the ability to kind of, um, and it just also significantly cuts your cost of living. Um, so it is important to aim for that mortgage-free but you do want to try your very best to have another pot of money, KiwiSaver, um, other assets that you can then use to fund your retirement. Yeah. What what the research all shows is that um, people, when they retire, they kind of typically spend for that first 10, 15 years of retirement, will actually spend more in retirement than they did before they retired. Sheesh. For the reason, Benny, you kind of get it, right? You don't mm. work slog your guts out for 50 years only to sit around at home and do absolutely nothing. Yeah. You, you kind of, you want to travel, you want to go, you want to pick up some hobbies, you want to do stuff and nothing in life is free. So you spend a little bit of money doing that. And it's not until you get to kind of that um, 80s, mid 80s, early to early 80s, that actually all of a sudden that's when you do become the homebody and the costs come back down. Yeah. Um, but, that's the truth about where and how people want to live, right? And so you need to have that pot of money that's able to help you, support you, do those things. Um, and ideally, the house is not where that's coming from because that's just unrealistic. Yeah, the reason I asked that is because I think that's most people's retirement plan in New Zealand or that's the goal, but it doesn't seem very well diversified because then where are your other forms of income going to come from? Unless you're drawing down... No. a reverse mortgage or something. And I do think reverse mortgages are actually much better than people think about as well. Yeah. I think it often causes issues in families when mm. someone expects, a kids expect to receive a mortgage-free house that is their inheritance and they yeah. don't. Um, but yeah, diversification is one of the big things, right? And we see this quite a lot in the property market. So um, I we've spoken to lots of people that have, um, oh, no, I'm just going to buy a rental property or I'm going to kind of buy a commercial building or even worse, I'm going to go on to kind of buy a partial share through a syndication on a commercial property building. The The problem with those as large investments is a massive chunk of your wealth is tied up there, right? So you might go, you might have two houses, two rental properties worth $2 million. They're living you a great income. But what do we know, right? We know stuff goes wrong. We know every now and then you're going to have tenants that can't that don't pay. You, we know that kind of you, you're going to end up with issues at the house and all of a sudden you're going to end up with an unexpected $30,000, $40,000 rental bill. Um, where a lot of people are at also where they've got high levels of leverage and because that's what they've used to fund them. Hopefully by the time you get to retirement, you've got rid of the leverage. But imagine if you're a property investor today that's kind of bought three houses over the last three years, uh, or sorry, bought yeah three years, three or four years, every single one of them you're currently underwater on. Hmm. Um, just because it's not valued like a share every single day doesn't mean that it's kind of you shouldn't be putting it into your spreadsheet as your net worth of going, well, actually, today my net worth is minus 100 grand because um, I took three commercial property, two properties at kind of 70% LTVs and the, the problem, the properties have all dropped by 30% each. Yeah. And so it, for those that want to use property, so outside of the first home, you want to use property to fund their retirements. I do think it's a great, great answer because they do spit out good incomes. Um, but make sure you diversify. Um, let's be honest, the commercial property market in New Zealand right now, right? Or oh, sorry, go start at residential. Residential, we're probably down 15% from the peak 
who knows, it might bounce. It looks as though it kind of has bounced a little bit um, or it might go further down. If we manage to build 200,000 homes in the next two years or the next five years, I'm pretty sure that will push prices down yeah. um, unless you've got a pretty special property, right? We, if we, we know it's a supply and demand game right now. Well, let's look at commercial property. That market's already down 20%. Again, most people are saying that's got another 30, 40, another 20% to go. Shit. Um, well, if you think about the interest rate mm. market, right? So market previously was trading on a on a 4% yield when 10-year notes were trading at kind of 2%. 10-year notes are currently trading at 5%. Um, so that means that those things should be trading on kind of a 7 8% yield. I've got to stop you there because you're getting too geeky, mate. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> When you talk about notes, so you're talking about a guaranteed return of two or four percent. So then yep. you would rather invest in that than into a commercial property, therefore yeah. decreasing the value of the commercial. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Loosely? Yeah, okay. basically. So a government, the government's going to pay me four percent or five percent for a ten year to lock up my money for ten years, and that's yeah. guaranteed unless the New Zealand government goes bust. Yeah, then we got much bigger problems. Yeah, but yeah, that's why as a relative return, which is what we are always looking for, those numbers have to come down. That's actually yeah something that I think a lot of people will understand but wouldn't have thought about it that way. But basically asset values can move when compared to other yeah. assets or investment types, right? So because one may become more favorable, as an example, simply I guess as term deposits have come back into fashion because interest rates have increased, everyone gets that all oh, guaranteed 6%, yep. then you're going to park your money in a term deposit rather than push up the price of the shares for ANZ or, or whoever. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd much rather take a term deposit where I've got to do no work and there is pretty much no risk versus earning 4% on a commercial property. Yeah. Um, or my equities. And that's, well, that's the big risk and that's one of the big things that we see interesting at the moment in the equity markets. Valuations do not yet reflect the new interest rates. Ah, okay. So we've still got quite a way to go. So... Maybe, see. maybe not. Okay. Yeah, uh, great answer from... Uh, oh, no, <laughs> there's no way you're going to pin me on uh, where, <laughs> where, where equity markets are going to go. Yeah. But it, but it is one of the big questions because if we always think about valuation starting off from lowest risk asset, which is government money or government yep. bonds, um, and then you've got bank accounts all the way through to, uh, well, a whole lot of stuff, but basically stocks and shares on the other side, to get to the risky stuff, you always need to be earning more um, or you should always be earning more money. Yeah. Um, and a share price, it's not as though the company can just sit there and go, yesterday I paid you $2 dividend and tomorrow I'm going to pay you $4 because the bank account, the interest rate's gone up. The only way you can think about it is going, I'm still going to get my 2% dividend, I'm still going to get some growth, but actually previously I was willing to pay $20 for that share. Today... I'm only going to be willing to pay $15 to make sure I get the same return. To bring this back to the everyday Kiwi who might be trying to dabble into investing for themselves, for instance, yep. do they? what's this core versus satellite? Uh, oh, this theory? is one of my favorites, right? Okay. Because it- I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that investing is as much about educating yourself and participating in what you're doing. The reason why we launched Clean Energy and crypto and property funds to sit beside people's KiwiSaver is because we know people want to be engaged and they want to be investing in stuff that they can talk about and be really interested in. So what core satellite means is you have a core to your portfolio. And generally for me, that means I'm going to buy some um, some ETFs, some trackers, some managed funds. That makes up maybe 80, 90% of my portfolio, right? So that's pretty safe um, over the long run it's going to go up it's well diversified there are no big issues with that but you know what when I go and have my beers with my mates and they want to talk to me about what I'm investing in and where I'm going it's pretty boring when I just say oh, I've just got it in the US equity ETF tracker yeah so that's where my satellite comes in and so I can say in my satellite I'm going to have I might have four or five names and four or five picks of things that I think are really exciting so it might be I've got a little bit in Bitcoin because I kind of like Bitcoin and I think it might do well. I think it's a really interesting story. Um, it might be Tesla. It might be in New Zealand or, or whatever it is. But these are my satellites, which are my higher risk 
pieces, which might be anywhere from kind of 2 to 5% of my total net worth, the beauty about that approach is that if they do really well, it's great. It adds value to my portfolio and I kind of make some money. If they do really badly, it's not ideal, but it doesn't put my core net worth at risk. Nice. Does that make sense? Yeah, you, you kind of sense. You, you, You're spreading your risk. You're putting, sitting there going, I've got a pot of money here, which I kind of, look, it's going to perform over the medium term. There's no question on it. Mm. Um, and that's going to deliver my retirement goals. And I've got a little bit of stuff that kind of just makes my life interesting and exciting. Yeah, because otherwise the risk with investing, I think, is it can be too boring. Yeah. Because it done right, it is boring, right? It's basically... The simpler your investment strategy, generally the better you're going to do. Yeah. I've recently signed up to Colonel Wealth. Oh, yeah, they're good. Yeah, yeah like to, to chuck a bit of money into their funds and I have because I haven't used them before. And I assumed, wrongly, that it was much the same as Shizzy's. But really, it's funds pre-built for you. Yeah. Again, you jump in there and there might be 15 funds or something. And I think I look at it from, okay, how do I make decisions? Bang, sweet. I'll pick a few. Let's roll so I can get learning. And other people would go, oh, but how do you know which is the best fund? Like, I don't know. No. But but at least now I'm on my learning journey of how all of that stuff works. And I think that's the piece that people forget about investing too is it's not just the return from the thing that you invest in. It is the layering of learning that you get to put on top that you didn't have before you put your money where your mouth is as well. And so... We, like one of our core purposes at Coda is how do we turn KiwiSaver from being a savings account into an investing account? And to me, that's all about education. So that's why when you come through our website, you go through our journey, we will build you your portfolio taking into account the satellites that interest you. But when you go and get your statement of advice from us, we're going to explain to you why we have done what we have done. We're going to explain when you kind of become a customer and you log into your app that's kind of got a list of everything you've got and the different pieces. We're going to explain to you you've got a little bit of US equities and a little bit of this, a little bit of this to break it down and go, we want you to know and understand that there's a little bit of, if you've chosen cryptocurrency, there's a little bit there. Do you understand that there's a little bit of of clean energy? Why have you only got 2.5%? Because it's high risk and we explain all of that. To me, it's incumbent on us as providers to give you the information and tools so that you can then take that away and make some awesome decisions outside of your KiwiSaver. Yeah. Which is kind of, that's where I see this going. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And then people get to learn more about some of these things as well. Is there a big part for people now to really understand transaction fees a lot more with all these different providers? Because that's... Nah, that's a bit that frustrates me. Mm, what I've noticed for one of the platforms that I use <laughs> is I have multiple shares, so I think I'm well diversified, but I know if I was to ever need to get that money out, I'm going to have to sell each of those individually, and yep. I'm going to get rammed uh, on the way out with transaction fees. It's a really, really hard one. So coming back to my example where it's 100 bucks a week, I said I let it aggregate up and kind of every couple of months I put in. The problem is what's happened where a lot of these platforms have gone now is they will charge you a dollar or three dollars per transaction um, and then once you move above and then it's on a percentage basis. But that's really, really hard, right? So if I'm sitting there going, I'm putting in a hundred bucks a week and I want to put that straight into the markets, at three dollars, even if I only do one trade, at three dollars, that's three percent. Fuck, yeah. my money's got to then earn three percent before I'm even neutral. Yes, and that's like when I'm expecting seven percent in a year, that's a big number. I learned this the hard way as a young fella, putting in money into the stock market directly and then getting charged on the way in and the way out. Oh, sorry, I forgot about the way out. So <laughs> yeah. that means I'm six percent down. Yeah, and then and then if I then come back to my other rule, which is actually I want to diversify and I got to make sure I've got in between fifteen or twenty. Fuck, if I did that every week, I could be down 60 bucks on yeah. fees before for, before I've even started. And so I think this is the big thing that people forget about. They love the idea of putting 100 bucks into New Zealand or $200 into Briscoe's or whatever. But you're making so expensive the fees that you've got to do, right? So if you do want to go single name exposure and single name stocks versus putting it 
into a fund, um, then you've got to be really careful that you are putting kind of hitting the maximum level on the fees um, or coming up with a way of achieving your diversification um, because it's it's really hard to do uh, when you're doing it on your own. That's yeah. where the funds model works so much better because it just is all done for you. Yeah, with a lower fee normally. Oh, it'll be yeah. typically a much lower fee. So look, it depends on what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, the ETFs that I buy in the US, they're charging me anywhere between... 0.03 and 0.1% per annum in terms of management fee. Of your total investment? Total investment. Yeah. Um, so for a 10 grand sitting there being invested in, in that fund, that's going to cost me anywhere between $30 and $100 a year. Yeah. Um, I have to get them there. So that mm. does cost me a little bit of money. Um, but for me, because I'm aggregating up, I kind of make sure that I try and don't do anything for less than five, 10 grand a trade. Yeah. And that's my $3. And your dividends from those i'd imagine would cover those fees yeah the, the dividends come in the beauty about that though is the dividends um sit there and they stay in my us dollar account yeah. uh, with the provider with the platform um and then what that happens is then if there are any dividends there when i kind of have got my number big enough that i'm happy to trade again then they just get traded back into it yeah so that allows me to achieve the compounding nature of what i want to do nice what is the main thing people forget when it comes to diversification, do you think? If there's a, a golden nugget for people to remember. Um, diversification, it's not just about companies. It's also about regions. Mm. And so I think too many investors focus exclusively in New Zealand and too many also focus exclusively in a sector, right? So a great conversation was with a friend um on friday night where she was like oh but why do i need to do why do i need to diversify surely i'll just go buy microsoft because fuck that's an amazing company and it's always going to be amazing i said maybe mm. it has been amazing it's been amazing for the better part of the last 25 years okay well i'll buy apple too we kind of just buying exactly the same yeah um and so what what people try and tend to do is they think that size equals safety and certain times it does but it doesn't always. And so just because they're a big, large company, that means that that should that they still can go wrong, right? Let's think about WorldCom, let's think about ExxonMobil. So many of these big, large, the largest companies of the world have turned to shit at some point in time. And so, yeah, I'd go make sure that you diversify across different sectors, across different geographies, um, and just don't believe just because it's large, you can avoid the diversification rules. How do people balance that with the sort of teaching that will pop up on their social media every now and then about it's not diversification is not a good idea. It's actually about focusing and going all in on one thing. And that's the thing that people that get rich really make their money from. That's so tempting, I think, for a younger person or, or just anybody to think, oh, yeah, maybe I should just go all in on Tesla. I'll give you a, an analogy that I reckon how many gamblers do you know that will consistently tell you about their wins? How many gamblers do you know that will talk about their losses? Mm. And so based on the conversations that I have with some of my friends, fuck, I should be surrounded by professional gamblers here, right? What are they doing working? <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Um, people are very quick at talking about their wins. People are very good at hiding their losses. And so that's a great strategy for kind of potentially making yourself rich. You just got to go in and understand that there's a two percent chance that it works. Yeah, nice. even Tesla. Let's be honest, right? In the fifteen years that it's been listed, well, probably not fifteen. Sorry, the ten years. I think it was two thousand eleven. They listed. Um, it's come like within days of going bankrupt at least three times. Yeah, uh, and that's the bit that people don't quite recognise, right? So, sure, it's done extremely well for its investors, but. Three times you got within kind of 24, 48 hours of that investment turning to zero. Yeah. And I think that's the bit that people don't recognize, right? So to me, investing is all about managing risk. The moment you start trying to shoot the lights out and the moment that you kind of trying to make a quick, easy win, you're done. That just reminds me actually that I think the 
The other danger of doing that is that if you have an investment that goes to zero, you're probably done. Your investment journey is probably done for the rest of your life because you're going to be so scarred. Because I've had stocks that have gone to zero and it can happen and it hasn't stopped me from investing because I've built enough education to realize that that's part of it. But if I had to go on all in on some of those things, I, I wonder if my mentality would be different. So I won't name them. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, there's been some really interesting research done on that on the impact that the New Zealand the 87 crash has had on the New Zealand stock market. The New Zealand the 87 crash in New Zealand was by far and away worse than anywhere else in the world. I think the index lost kind of like 70 percent, 80 percent of its value, um, and it didn't really recover for a better part of 10, 15 years. What that did is that put an entire generation of investors out of the market. And into the property market. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's not even just the property issue, but people went, like I think about, say, my parents' generation, they just said, well, fuck that, we got so badly burnt then, mm. we're never going back. Um, yeah. And, yeah, it's people were willing to dip their toes, people are willing to give it a go, people are willing to get larger and larger and then pile up on their losses. Um, but unfortunately what happens is um, they then kind of, if they haven't diversified, they haven't set themselves up properly, they only see the downside of of of, um, of investing rather than the upside. Again, coming back to my gambling analogy, someone goes to the races, they lose okay. the first three bets they make, more often than not, that's the last three they're going to make as well. Mm. Yeah. Unless they're a chaser, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before we go, mate, something that I think is really important for people to remember too is diversification is not just about companies that no. you're investing in. It's about also yourself. And the amount of times I've seen people who have been stripped of a job that they thought they were shooting the lights out at, like you said before, to them being told you're not needed here anymore. And they are just completely blindsided and they'll say things like, if only I had have studied that or if only I had have taken that opportunity or kept up with my such and such on the side, you know, I think there's a big case for reminding Kiwis that one of the best assets they'll ever have is themselves. Yeah. And it's not your property, it's not your Kiwi saver, et cetera. Those are great, but those are diversifying from your own abilities too. So, you know, thinking about different ways that you can become more valuable yourself and look after yourself should, you know, part of your life go to zero, just like any stock. Yeah, mm. 100%. And the the other side of that, oh, sorry, that there are different ways of doing that, right? Not everyone can diversify from a career perspective. Not everyone can diversify from a, from a skills. I'd, I'd argue with that, but a lot of people think they can't. But another way of diversifying is reducing your risk in other areas, right? Am I going to max myself out on four commercial properties and a house that yeah. all falls over when my big fancy job falls over. Um, if I lose that, that's another way of kind of you manage, you, you diversify yourself personally by managing your risk. Yes. And I think far too many people put too much risk on themselves, which kind of is what turns it into a house of cards. And so that risk management structure on how you've sorted your life out is the easiest way to diversify. Yeah, the leverage is so easy to get in New Zealand and so been the thing to do and it's worked for generations and whatnot in terms of property and stuff. The amount of people that I talk to that I can tell are leveraged and how shit their decision making is because I can tell it actually anchors back to what something in the back of their brain is saying about their leverage and then the risk they won't take in other areas where you know there's a big return over there but they can't because they're too, they're stuck now or they've got too much leverage. That's probably the other piece that we need to explain to kids, compounding and leverage. Leverage equals risk. Yeah. That, that's the people think no one understands. And risk equals fear and stop and I won't do something that could be logical. Yeah. I, and this is where it's, again, going to get really interesting in the next 12 months, 18 months. Leverage, sorry, zero or 2% interest rates and very ultra low interest rates over the last 15 years has allowed people to make some pretty dumb decisions and forget about some core fundamentals, right, mm. of risk and return. As we're now moving into arguably 
a more normal rate environment that stays higher for longer, a lot of those decisions are going to kind of have to be unwound pretty quickly. Um, again, we're going to really start to see the difference between the good operators and those that just kind of manage to win through the financial engineering. It's going to be really interesting. The death of the zombie company is um, what they're starting to talk about in the US. Okay, so we've still got some hurt to come. That's how we're going to end this. <laughs> we've got well, okay. hurt, I think luckily for us in this kind of world and the people that are listening to this podcast, hurt equals opportunity mm. because fundamentally the biggest opportunities arise um, in times when things get a little uncertain. And yeah. hopefully when that sits in front of you, you recognise that. You've listened to Luke, you've kind of diversified yourself, you haven't taken on too much risk. Um, and that means that when an opportunity comes up, you can jump at it and you've got to be brave enough to do it um, versus sitting there and waiting for someone to do it for you. Well, bring it on, mate. As always, some awesome insights there. And yeah, time's flowing again there. If people want to find out more from you guys, where do they go? Where can they find some information? Uh, so we are Kota Wealth, www.kotawealth.co.nz. We got heaps of information on our website um, covering lots of random topics, um, videos, podcasts, all that kind of stuff there. So come along um, and give us reach out, give us a yell if you want to find out anything about investing or even just kind of stress test some of your thoughts around your own investment portfolio. We're always happy to help. Nice one, mate. You've got the old socials cranking as well, so I'm sure people will find you on all the different channels. But a pleasure as always. We'll have to uh, come back and maybe early-ish 2024 and see where the world's at. Oh, oh be the same. Be the same? <laughs> okay, maybe mid-2024? <laughs> no, nah, I think... Uh, we can, we'll have the same conversation. Okay. But I, no, it'll be interesting. All as right. much as we love to think things are about to change, that's been what we've learned this year is uh, nothing does. Mm. All right. Well, we'll see you in 2024. Cool.